Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already... Get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. This season, we're reaching beyond my own collection of interviews to bring you voices from the Studs Terkel Radio Archive. The archive holds more than 5,000 programs that the pioneering oral historian and broadcast legend recorded for WFMT Radio in Chicago between 1952 and 1997. If interwar Berlin conjures images of decadence and racy nightclubs, that's partly Christopher Isherwood's doing. His short novel, Goodbye to Berlin, inspired Cabaret, the enduring stage musical and 1972 movie adaptation. My grandmother actually took me to see the film when it first came out. She was mortified by the sexual undercurrents and what she'd exposed me to. She didn't have to worry. I just liked the music and didn't pick up one bit on the homosexual, bisexual, or plain old sexual storylines. Christopher Isherwood was born in England in 1904. From an early age, he chafed at the respectability and rigid expectations of the upper-middle-class society in which he was raised. By his mid-twenties, he was itching for a change of scenery. His first novel had flopped, and medical school, which he'd attended for all of six months, was a lousy fit. So he moved to Berlin and spent the next three and a half years of his life there. He picked up prostitutes in the city's boy bars, slummed it with other expats, fell in love... And he wrote. Christopher had always been out to those who knew him, but his semi-autobiographical early books about his Berlin years were vague on the subject of the narrator's sexual orientation. In 1976, Christopher ditched the ambiguity and published Christopher and His Kind, a candid memoir about his life and work in the 1930s. And that's the book he discussed with Studs Terkel in an interview first broadcast on February 10th, 1977. By now, Christopher is 73 years old, an American citizen, a Californian, a Hindu disciple, and, to Studd's obvious delight, a fount of literary gossip and frank reflection. Studd's begins by taking Christopher back to his days in Germany. So there you are in Berlin in 1929. And the question is, what led you to Berlin in 1929? Well, the immediate reason was that... um my friend uh, Winston Auden, W.H. Auden, 
was there and wanted me to come over and visit him. And um, I was also very drawn to the idea that uh, I was going to meet a lot of German boys there because uh, being homosexual, that idea appealed to me very much. And uh, uh, I went over there and spent uh, 10 days or so with Auden. Um, and then um, I began to think, well, I really would like to go back. I would like to see more. I quite fell under the spell of Berlin. And um, so later in the year, I came back on my own, having made arrangements so that I could live there at least for a while. And... Um, I just found out how I liked it. And also you were looking for a home. And the way, there's a feeling here of a restlessness. You, of course, were wanting to write so bad, so right you could taste it. But you were looking for not quite England, right? Not quite England. I really wanted to be on my own. On your own, yeah. And as I now realize, more than I did then, I wanted to be in another world where I could speak another language. Uh, I wanted my own language, so to speak, for myself while I was writing, but I wanted to have a, a sort of different persona, as they say nowadays. Uh, I wanted to be German Christopher instead of yeah. English Christopher. Is this true, too? Just a question. Being in a different land, a different culture, you as a writer could perhaps know more about your home there than here, why so many went to Paris in the 20s, and suddenly I realized something about America. Oh, that's that, very true, yeah. yes. And also, I was strongly persuaded at that time, and indeed I still believe it, that you are a different person in different places. You see, uh, you go to Berlin, suddenly you're a German studs. And it's very interesting to find out what the German studs is like. Yeah. For instance, um, I was being asked uh, just now uh, about uh, uh, England and America. And I said that... While I'm in England, my American half, after all, I have lived here more than half my life, comes out. But while I'm here, my English half comes out. Mm. Here I always think of myself as English. So I suppose the answer is, I think of myself as a foreigner. So wherever you may be, you're a foreigner, and yet a foreigner yet at home. A crazy paradox. Yes, here. because you see, I don't yeah. mind. I, yeah. I like being a yeah. foreigner. It's, yeah. I don't feel... Uh, I don't understand this thing very well about roots, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I mean, I have roots, very strong roots. I'm very, very British in many ways. But I can plant, replant them anywhere, you know, yeah. in a moment. What's <laughs> moving me about Christopher and his kind, which you call a revisionist autobiography, was very moving to me as the candor. But the, over and above that, the good humor throughout, there's a, a, there's a joy to it. And you're free. Not that you weren't free then. You always have been sort of a free man, but within limitations, haven't you? Certain things you had to hide. Oh, yes, that's true. Throughout this book, we have this aspect of it, which you are so open. I suppose you might call this a liberating book, too, isn't it, in a way? Well, it's liberating for those who need to be liberated. <laughs> I don't know. That depends on people. Oh, you mean liberating for me? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, to some extent. Um, it does make a difference. That's a funny thing. I mean, one can feel things and talk about them to one's friends and be perfectly open about them. But actually to print them and see them going out to bookshops and all sorts of people reading them, it does make a slight difference. Yes, there's a slight sense of extra relief. 
there's a sort of feeling now, really, uh, uh, I'm absolutely, it doesn't matter a bit. <laughs> I don't have to be uh, the least bit cautious with anybody. Could you have done this book 10, would you have done this 10, 15 years ago, assuming you had the time and the energy at that time to do it? 15 years ago, maybe not, no. 10 years, yeah. maybe so. I should explain to you also, there's another thing, another thing involved. There, you see, um, very, um, very soon after my first arrival in, um, in uh, America, uh, I got to know this Hindu monk uh, who had a center in Los Angeles, and I became, by degrees, uh, his disciple, and um, uh, remained so ever since. Now, as far as he was concerned, he knew all about me, including about my homosexuality. And, of course, the Hindus take a very different view of this. They're not moralistic in the same sense. But he had a congregation. And um, the, uh, many of the members of the congregation brought with them their kind of Western prejudices. And they were always a little bit uh, worried about me uh, because from time to time rumors used to come of, about me uh, which reached their ears since I was living right there in the city. And so I did have a certain hesitation in really embarrassing him beyond a certain mm. point. But then, as time went on, this became less and less of a, of a problem, and that's why I say that perhaps 15 years ago, quite aside from anything else, I might have hesitated. Yeah. This is one of those mysteries. How did you come to recognize your foibles? Because it's hard for a person to recognize his own foibles. Well... You know, I was taught by masters. I mean, uh, uh, Auden told me from morn till eve what all my peculiarities were. <laughs> he was very outspoken and very candid about them, and he was always telling me that I was this or that or the other. And um, he, uh, he decided uh, that I was infantile. But I said, <laughs> uh, uh, we both agreed, really, basically, that uh, people who are incapable of being silly are really not intelligent. I mean, uh, people who take themselves too seriously, who are, have sort of, um, who reach something called maturity or the wisdom of uh, senior uh, citizens or something, that's terrible. That's a kind of death, I think. That, that sort of, uh, um, the idea that you grow wise in some way uh, and then uh, can't be silly anymore, can't find anything funny anymore, but it's all, you'll find out something called the truth about life. But the truth about life is, of course, uh, just the same when you're young and, uh, and when you're old. It's a double-sided affair, life. And to say that it uh, has to be taken seriously is just as silly as to say it has to be taken frivolously. You know, it's beautiful, Agatha. Not to be afraid to look like a fool. That is not to, be, not to be afraid to take risks is what you're using. And never to lose that childlike, not childish, but childlike wonder, sense of wonder, I suppose. Well, I wish I could say that I could maintain it. This is only a kind of aim rather than a, <laughs> rather something that I've succeeded at. But it's uh, the, the rigidity of not ever being childish or childlike is what is so dangerous. That's why this book is so beautiful. It is anti-rigid and my anti-pomposity, too. I found uh, Auden's poem about Christopher Isherwood here. Why don't you read it? It's about <laughs> you. <laughs> you know, this was a poem that he wrote in a book of mine, and there's, um, there's really no other... This is just a tiny bit of it, but I, I copied it out and sent it to 
uh, Auden's literary executor. Uh, it'll be published, I guess, one day. But this is... He was making fun of me, you see. He says, Who is that funny-looking young man, so squat, with a top-heavy head? He was always talking about the, my enormous head. A cross between a cavalry major and a rather prim landlady sitting there sipping a cigarette. <laughs> If absolutely the whole universe fails to bow to your command, how you stamp your bright little shoe, how you pout, house-proud old landlady. At times I can shake you. (laughs) (laughs) So throughout there was this this air of... uh, self-mockery, kidding. Oh, yeah. Orton had that too. Oh, terrific, yes, yes. We have come to something that is so much part of that time. Of course, the 10 years here, in these 10 years, Christopher was kind of 1929 to 39. These 10 years were, of course, traumatic and cataclysmic and overwhelming years for the world. Terrible years. And there you were in Germany. Now, you were, were you ever, you touch on this, politically committed to anti-fascism, say, as Spender at at time in Auden War, particularly when the Spanish Civil War broke out? Oh, very much so, yes, Absolutely. Uh, and uh, also, you see, I did have a sort of special, uh, I, I mentioned that earlier in the book, a, a special kind of indoctrination uh, as regards the, um, uh, the homosexual aspect because I, by pure accident, I, I became a, a boarder at this house uh, which involved our going to have lunch every day at the Institute of Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, who was the great expert on sexology and so on. And he was a man, uh, he was himself homosexual and Jewish, uh, and also leftist inclined. And he was very, very well aware of the fact that the Nazis, even long before they came to power, said, Germany lost the First World War because of the leftists, the Jews and the homosexuals. These three groups undermined her morale and caused her to be defeated. And they were passionately on the warpath against uh, Hirschfeld. They tried to kill him a couple of times. Once they almost succeeded. This was way long before Hitler came into power because he was so daring he went and made speeches in Munich, which was their kind of uh, headquarters and breeding ground at that time. So I did at least get through my head very early one thing, that the Nazis were bad news for me and my kind. And these are the years, things are popping now. Oh, you also meet the German boys at these places where boys gathered to be picked up. And these mostly working class, Uh, mostly working class kids. Uh, It wasn't, that was really because I had a sort of preference for them. Uh, I mean, there were lots and lots of middle-class uh, German boys who were homosexual. Um, but I, I just so happened, I always felt they were a little bit prissy. I thought they were too sort of dainty. <laughs> they are, uh, the, what, I, what I liked about the German uh, uh, working class was, as they say in, uh, in that uh, song of, of, uh, of Brecht's, uh, even his Sunday collar wasn't white as mm. snow. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting also, Osman uh, Osman, you imply attraction of opposites here too. The blonde Teutonic, and you, I guess, were a dark haired young small Englishman. Yes, there way. was that too. And then, of course, um, I was an upper class. Yeah, Englishman, an upper class. And therefore, liked, 
I felt that the uh, working class was forthright and uh, and uh, more sort of. Um, this was kind of romantic version, less too. tricky somehow. A sort of semi-romantic version too, to some extent. Yes, it? yes. At I, the I've, same time, you were you were socially conscious in that respect. Oh yes, I think this these feelings I would have had. Yeah. Every bit as much if I'd been heterosexual, mm. that wouldn't have made any difference. Yeah. I think at this period I would have been drawn strongly to working-class girls yeah. uh, for exactly the same reasons. Yeah. Now that your mother, Kathleen, she was almost an Edwardian figure, wasn't she? Your mother. Oh, yes, very much Edwardian. When did your mother recognize your preference that you were homosexual? Or did she ever accept it? Well, she did and she didn't. My mother was the sort of person who uh, was... Uh, very good at kind of glossing things over. Uh, and, um, yes, she accepted it. But um, she didn't quite... Uh, she said to me once in a moment of candor, uh, she didn't really quite... It didn't seem real to her because she really couldn't imagine uh, any kind of sexual act in which a woman wasn't involved. <laughs> Therefore, I suppose, lesbianism would have seemed perfectly natural. <laughs> <laughs> Doubly natural to her. But there was one part you dragged mother when uh, it was a German working class. Your your young friend Heinz was it, I think. She what, was it Heinz? Yes. Or, or she wasn't too crazy. She accepted it. But later on, a couple of English boys came on upper class. That was different. The matter of class was involved. That was much nicer. Yes, yeah. yes. She, she liked that. Yes, yes. There's a very funny story dealing with the marriage. The marriage of convenience between Auden and Erica Mann, Thomas Mann's daughter. Now, yes, she wanted to marry you. Suppose you set the scene for that. Yes, well, what happened was that she uh, had an anti Nazi cabaret, and they used to perform in such places as Holland and Belgium, in Austria, which then was not occupied by the Nazis yet, and um, in Switzerland, and in Denmark. And uh, I was in, um, at the time, I guess this was in Belgium, maybe Holland, I forget. And she said to me one day, Christo, I have something rather personal to ask you. Um, would you marry me? And the reason was that she just heard that the Nazis were going to take away her citizenship. And at that time, the law was that if you married a British subject, you became British instantly without any, former, uh, any further formalities, whatever. And I uh, had a couple of reasons why I didn't want to get married. Um, one sounds really, truly childish, uh, but uh, it was curiously strong. I was terribly embarrassed at the idea that anybody would think I was trying to pass as a heterosexual <laughs> by getting married. <laughs> and uh, so um, I, um, I thought, well, at least I'll see if I can't get somebody else. And I immediately thought of Auden, who was always very adventurous in any, <laughs> anything of this sort. And he wired back, delighted. Well, they got married, and that was all right. And the funny thing was that uh, a little while later, when we get to the United States, um, we went to stay with the Manns. Uh, a Time magazine photographer came, and the Time photographer said, I can understand why Mr. Auden is sitting in this family group, because, after all, he's your son-in-law. But what is Mr. Isherwood doing here? And uh, Thomas Mann answered in German, which everybody understood except the photographer, he said, he's the family pimp. <laughs> you were the matchmaker. Yes. <laughs> you had arranged it. <laughs> Perhaps this last 
before we say goodbye for now, not that you were less politically, you never were, you were not less politically committed, but now fully committed to the idea of, in a sense, liberation of the homosexual. Yes, and in, in, in a more general way, if you ask me what my politics were, I should really say I'm a member of the American Civil Liberties Union. That's to say, mm. I'm a regular kind of liberal. Mm. And I'm much more interested in local causes, by and large. I mean, I'm more interested in California politics yeah. than in national yeah. politics, uh, insofar well, as I Perhaps you may interested. have the answer to a great deal of what is the dilemma today. People looking for some little triumph, some little victory, some little effect of, them, of what they do since they're overwhelmed by other events, and maybe community victories and community matters might, in a sense, extend to the city, to the country, to the world, the little victories. Oh, yes, yeah. I know many people whose lives are absolutely uh, enriched by doing these things. Perhaps you could read this last part, you speak of third person. The, oh, yeah. This last part, in a sense, might be close to your credo. He must never again give yeah. way to embarrassment, never deny the rights of his tribe. Never apologize for its existence. Never think of sacrificing himself masochistically on the altar of that false god of the totalitarians, the greatest good of the greatest number, whose priests are alone empowered to decide what good is. By his own admission, Christopher Isherwood wasn't very concerned with gay rights when he first moved to Berlin in 1929. He treated homosexuality as, quote, a private way of life discovered by himself and a few friends. But through his visits to Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Research, he began to discover a broader kinship. By then, it had been more than three decades since Dr. Hirschfeld had founded the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, the world's first homosexual rights organization. As Christopher told Studs, Hirschfeld was a gay leftist Jew who became an early Nazi target. On May 10, 1933, the Nazis burned his institute's library along with a bust of Hirschfeld himself. Christopher was there and looked on in quiet horror. He left Berlin a few days later. In 1939, on the eve of World War II, Christopher and his lifelong friend, W.H. Auden, both emigrated to the United States. Auden settled in New York, Christopher in Los Angeles. He wrote fiction as well as autobiographical and dramatic works, and he published translations of Hindu texts in collaboration with his spiritual teacher. When he was in his late 40s, Christopher began a relationship with 18-year-old Don Bacardi, who became a gifted portrait painter. They remained partners for more than three decades. Christopher Isherwood died on January 4, 1986. He was 81. Don Bacardi still lives in the Santa Monica home they once shared. To learn more about Christopher Isherwood and to listen to our Season 4 episode about Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, please visit makinggayhistory.com. That's where you'll find all our past episodes as well. Many thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible. Senior producer Nahani Rouse, co-producer and deputy director Inga Detaya, audio engineer Jeff Town, researcher Brian Furry, photo editor Michael Green, and our social media team, Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Denio Lorenko. Special thanks to Jenna Weiss-Berman and our founding editor and producer, Sarah Burningham. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios, with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and the One Archives at the USC Libraries. 
Season 8 of this podcast is produced in association with the Studs Terkel Radio Archive, which is managed by WFMT in partnership with the Chicago History Museum. A very special thank you to Allison Shine Holmes, Director of Media Archives at WTTW Chicago PBS and WFMT Chicago, for giving us access to Studs Terkel's treasure trove of interviews. You can find many of them at studsterkel.wfmt.com. Making Gay History's eighth season has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, proud Chicagoans Barbara Levy Kipper and Erwin and Andrew Press, the Small Change Foundation, and our listeners, including Greg Adgate, who made a generous donation in honor of his daughter, Anna. Thanks, Greg. So long. Until next time. <laughs> 